everyone. This week on Paul's Security Weekly, um, we will do an interview. A technical segment is what we're going to lead in with first uh, from Mike Roderick and Adam Gordon of ITPro.TV. We'll be talking about uh, virtualization and the trusted platform TPM uh, and how to use virtual smart cards and things of that nature, which is awesome. Uh, it's actually uh, Mike and Adam's uh, first time on the show. Mike's actually been here in studio, I believe he was here for episode 500. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I was. I was there for the uh, 500 blizzard. Yeah, you were there for the blizzard. So now we had to get you having on the show, which is great. And then we will talk about security news. The order's a little out of whack this week. So uh, in the security news, we are going to talk about blaming Russia. Um, Oracle and Microsoft released some patches, hacking cash converters, Apple's Face ID, which you knew was going to come up. Um, <laughs> Horrible bug bounties and NDAs uh, with a drone company and uh, books I'd give to my 30-year-old self. I thought this was a great (laughs) blog post that I I wanted to tell. Not so much security-related, but uh, interesting nonetheless. And um, 121 pieces of malware flagged on an NSA employee's home computer. I thought that would be an interesting topic to discuss as well. Then we have a pre-recorded interview with Kyle Wilhoit from Domain Tools. And let me tell you, you definitely want to stick around for this interview. It was absolutely fascinating, a look into the creepy underground um, and underground forums and the dark web and the deep web, as it were. Very, very interesting. Kyle, I actually pushed him a number of times until he cried uncle and said, no, I can't tell you how I track those people and how we track those people into getting caught because I don't want them to know. Uh, So stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. I'm, of course, your host, Paul Zadorian. Excited to be here, as always, on Paul's Security Weekly. Hi, and welcome to the show. I totally introduce our host right now, but I've got a totally awkward boner. But we're... Oh, hey! I'm, I'm in the studio with you guys. That's kind of cool. Um, yeah. Sounds like a plan. And we'll at least have one person listening. That's right. Just yeah, yeah I, I know. And I appreciate it, and I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed your spooning with Jeff. But, uh, you know. Hey, that's actually built a new office. Oh, okay. Yeah, third baby on the way, so I needed a new office. Nice. I, I, I lost my old office. That's now the baby room. Brought to you by... Has your network been breached? Cyber Reason can help you answer this question. Cyber Reason products hunt for threats within your network and eliminate them in real time. To Cyber Reason, real time means within seconds. Founded by former military hackers who don't play by the rules, they've built this experience into their platform. Harness ingenuity and imagination, not just code, to defeat attackers. Cyber Reason, disrupt the adversary and let the hunt begin. Endgame automates the hunt for both known and never-before-seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame. Automate the hunt. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Like a bag of rabid cats tossed into a VW Beetle after being dipped in bacon grease, it's Paul. (laughs) Yes, we are here. It is Paul's Security Weekly, episode number 537 for Thursday, November 16th, 2017. Couldn't be more excited that I, well, don't drive a Volkswagen Beetle filled with bacon grease and something else but whatever you wish you did whatever maybe not but oh. it's okay i want to welcome all of our viewers and listeners today and introduce our in-studio host for this evening who made it here after spending an hour and 38 minutes in traffic mr doug white 
I did make it here, and the traffic was fun, and I got to think about all kinds of horrific things while I was there, like cats dipped in bacon grease, which is just so the kind of stuff you think about. Bacon it grease. was rabid cats dipped in gravy. Yeah, I was like, I would rather be with rabid cats dipped in bacon grease than in this traffic. I was so. paging. I was like paging Doctor White, Doctor yeah. White, to <laughs> operating room doctor. one. Doctor White, <laughs> doctor, 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 doctor. The patient is going down for the last time. And that patient would have been long gone. If it oh, took an yeah, hour and thirty-eight gone. minutes. The way the real world works. I'm sorry, man, but I would have been here sooner. We just we have to get your own private helicopter to come. That's in what the I was thinking. A drone, a drone, like yeah, yeah. just like a little mini drone that sort of attaches to, to you, and yeah. you just like hang there, like like this, sort of being. You know, I, I was thinking sort of like, like, an, like, like this, you know. <laughs> and there's all these people just sort of you know going overhead, like. <laughs> and then someone hacks your drone, and then you're yeah, then you're screwed. But. And then there's the people going like, <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh yeah, thanks. It's, <laughs> what a great day. You have such a vivid imagination, Doug. I don't know. <laughs> it's a mess in here. It's, it's a very interesting place to be. <laughs> Thanks, Kurt. An interesting show when you're on. Uh, speaking of people on the show, Mr. Jeff Mann joins us via Skype. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hey, glad to be here. I have a quick question for Doug. What Uh-oh. year VW Beetle bus? I was thinking like 69, but, you know, I mean, that's that's the only year. That was a good year. That was a good year. That was a good year. Good, good vintage Volkswagen. <laughs> Jeff and I had some good vintage cigars and scotch when we were at Sands Hackfest. That was fun. Jeff and I had cigars. We Jeff and I had cigars and drinks at Wild West Hackenfest. Funny South how that Dakota. works. I know. Where, where when Jeff's Jeff around, is, we have yeah. like drinks and cigars. We got to talk to like really strange people from North Dakota who were trying to understand security <laughs> while being really, really drunk. Yeah. <laughs> nice and, and dressed up for Halloween. That's right. They were dressed for Halloween. <laughs> As like Mario Kart characters or something. It was. It was. So, it was, would you have rather been in traffic or back at uh, Wild West talking to those folks from North Dakota? Oh, back at Wild West by far. That's that was a lot more fun than sitting in traffic in Providence and <laughs> watching people try to text. <laughs> now, Jeff, before we get started, uh, I want to get your take on the Sands Hackfest. I don't know if you want to reserve that maybe for later in the show. You want to think about that. I want to do a little recap. I did some on Enterprise Security Weekly. Did you want to do that maybe later? I don't know how many talks you got to see while you were there. I got to see a couple talks. I'd be happy to pipe in. Why don't we save that for the uh, news segment? Make or sure I can do it now. It's up to you. No, it's good. We'll save it for the news segment, and we'll give a little teaser that Jeff and I – and it's a very interesting – I th- for me, it was a very different take on a pen testing conference, which was uh, both refreshing and awesome. So Cool. Stay tuned yeah. for that. I have no teleprompter. Uh because I don't, I, I don't. It's not the te- you know. It's the Bluetooth technology that. In any case, um, I will talk about itpro.tv. You can go to itpro.tv forward slash Security Weekly, save thirty percent off your monthly uh, subscription for the lifetime of your active subscription. You get a seven day trial and thirty percent off using a discount code SW30C. Who needs a teleprompter? You don't need a teleprompter for that. Nailed a cold. You not should have been there already. Anyway, that's right. And um, we have with us some uh, folks from IT Pro TV, which I'm very excited uh, to have on the show and have a, a discussion with primarily about virtualization and TPM. Uh, first up, we have Mike Roderick, and he's only first because that's the order you're in the show notes, not to play favorites. <laughs> Mike is first. Um, <laughs> Mike found his niche uh, later in a li- uh, little later in life after being from Norman, Oklahoma, uh, in the raucous scene of the 90s country western bar scene. Interesting. Oh, right. You're looking at the bio off our webpage. I'm going to read your bio because it's interesting. <laughs> it was there he developed the skill that would propel him to mullet fame, line dancing. It is here that ITPro.TV, his true skill shines. He's their resident security <laughs> kung fu master, only equaled by his skill in flattering our fearless ITPro.TV leader. With 10 years of IT instruction experience, he was hired as an ITPro.TV edutainer. In 2014, Mike enjoys working at IT Pro TV, which is what I'm told. That's what it says in your bio, Mike. Maybe you'll tell us different because he helps <laughs> others become successful in IT and technology. Mike, welcome to the program today. Hey, thanks, Paul. This is what you get when, you know, they asked me to write a bio 
and I, I tell them that nah, I'm not going to do that. They get somebody else to do it, and you have no idea what they're going to put in there. Oh, they should have got me so. to do it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be really interesting then. <laughs> We'd have rabbit cats and, and uh, yeah, and the mock arena. <laughs> now, Adam Gordon, uh, for, who is also an edutainer at IT Pro TV, is here, and it says, not too long ago, rock star legend Jimi Hendrix posed the important question: Are you experienced? Foreshadowing the birth of one of the most expert Microsoft experts in the history of experts. Adam Gordon. <laughs> Holding 160 certifications and counting, Adam's Encyclopedia oh of Knowledge God. is only rivaled by his massive and quite ridiculous collection of socks. Adam's 30-plus years in IT, as an IT instructor in the private and public sectors has fueled his passion for gobbling down espresso like a college kid downing beers at Oktoberfest. These are very enthralling bios i'm just going to continue reading because this is so fun his long hair and assortment of bracelets are a memento of his days working in the music industry rubbing shoulders with celebrities in exclusive european clubs but now lives in a quiet married life in south florida teaching and traveling with his wife and two daughters adam has been a SME for it pro tv for some time and we're they're excited to welcome him as a full-time host and check out his 19-page resume when you have a couple of hours to kill and want to feel like an underachiever. Learn all things Microsoft <laughs> with Adam and stay updated on the latest trends in sock fashion, live and on demand with IT Pro TV. Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. This is what happens when you let us write each other's bios, That's actually. Right. <laughs> uh, but it's a pleasure to be here. The bar, and I see that it looks like you folks have crashed Don Pazette's office. We have. We took we, over. Yeah, we did. That's awesome. I'm waiting to hit the bottles as soon as we cut the camera. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I know that they're empty because that's the first question I asked. I'm like, oh, party up here. And I'm like, they're all, they're all empty. Party already happened. Um, so, uh, Adam and Mike, I want to ask you, uh, start the discussion and talk about um, virtualization, specifically VMware. And where I wanted to start before we get into some of the, the TPM stuff that you have a demo of and everything, um, I wanted to talk about VDI because I get questions about VDI and I'm not – a VDI expert. In fact, I've never used VDI. I've only read the marketing brochures, so I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm not qualified to comment on VDI. But a lot of people are trying you to are tackle. You are qualified to sell it, though. Probably qualified to sell it. I can certainly spell it as well. And so, what people ask is, how does VI, uh, VDI help me? in my security architecture? Can I use it to help solve this nasty endpoint security problem? Mm, great question. Rock, paper, scissors? You, want to um, you know, the, the, the first thing I think of with, with implementing VDI and its, its help in security is the fact that we're really maintaining a single image. Um, so as oh, far so as like sorry, patch Mike, cycles go. Yeah, take a step back. For those that aren't familiar with VDI, like what is VDI? Sure, sure. Uh, virtual desktop infrastructure where we're basically spinning up a virtual desktop when an employee needs to log in. Um, and so each employee that logs in is going to get a new uh, copy of this machine, the virtual desktop that they're going to utilize. Uh, and depending on how we set up, there's many different ways we can set it up, where if they have individual machines that they get, or if it's a brand new copy of this virtual desktop every time they log on, uh, no changes are saved to it, documents, things like that get, get saved uh, outside of the VM. Um, so it can it can really help with again with uh, like patch management and things like that because I'm I'm maintaining that single image. I don't know what else you want to throw in there, Adam. So you know certainly the single the single instance image in terms of patch management definitely a big plus. But I think overall configuration management, change management, all things that go into that. But even more importantly, you know when we think about starting to do things like hey we have an issue where maybe we've had some sort of a breach or we have a problem. Traditionally, it comes from more often than not, people having the ability, the permission, and or the need to go into their machines and start messing around and doing things that perhaps central IT um, management capability is gonna prevent, but because we have to give them the override to do it, they get in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. With VDI, we're standardizing that desktop environment we're stabilizing an image and we're locking it down so nobody's going to go in and make changes without permission. We're eliminating a lot of the unknown, the uncertainty. We're also standardizing the way people interact and collaborate. We're going to avoid a lot of the concerns that come from the unknowns. And when they do, in theory, go places they're supposed to not go, and we all know right, that's going to happen, and maybe they download something or they get malware or whatever the case is, 
uh, reverting that image and or dealing with it uh, is a lot easier because we are sandboxed, number one. So we have the capability and the abilities to isolate very quickly. If we're using continuous monitoring capabilities, we hopefully flag that almost immediately. We can react quicker. And because we're not saving changes necessarily, creating differencing disks, essentially in cloned images, it's easier to manage that differential and deal with the concerns associated with it. So it's it's just good all the way around for lots and lots and lots of reasons. Now, what I've heard is that VDI has a very difficult uh, deployment and uh, in, in maintenance that's associated with it. While it solves a lot of problems, it's difficult to deploy. And, and so I guess along those lines, one of my recommendations I have for folks are like, hey, I've got legacy applications that require uh, legacy versions of the browser. I don't want to expose them to the internet, so I'll give them a VDI instance with a supported browser, and they can basically only get to the application. They use it almost to deploy an application. Is that not the right way to do it? And how can we uh, improve the maintenance and overhead that it's experienced with deploying VDI? So definitely one of the right ways to do it, no doubt about it. Um, great usage case in that respect. Um, in terms of deploying the overhead, the requirements, the concerns, it, it's really a learning curve, right? It's like anything else. You got to skill up your team in order to understand how to deploy and support. You don't have as huge infrastructure investment potentially, depending on the scope of the usage case. If you're spinning up five or 10 or 20 limited instances in, in what you were describing, Paul, it's a fairly straightforward solution. One or two uh, reasonably well a provisioned host in terms of resources are, are pretty much what you're going to need and bandwidth because you obviously have to have the right amount of infrastructure bandwidth to be able to create the opportunity for those instances to be run. Uh, but other than that, we're not talking about a huge investment in time or energy. I think where people get sidetracked with VDI and where they go into the rabbit hole is around trying to do an enterprise level deployment with existing infrastructure and architecture and they don't step back and understand the specific things we need to address and be concerned about high-end storage for the requirements around spinning up those instances and IOPS and latency around hmm. the storage platform become a bottleneck, so we gotta worry about that. We need bandwidth in general, so we gotta worry about that. And we need hosts, plural, that are gonna be up to the task of creating and running these instances and, and essentially provisioning them out. And people think, oh, I've got two or three main, you know, huge hosts that I run for cloud infrastructure on the server side to virtualize. I could probably do more or less the same thing with VDI. The requirements are smaller per instance, but because you're running so many of them, potentially in an enterprise scalable deployment, you gotta really be on top of your uh, planning and your mm -hmm. thought process around capacity and scalability to understand how to scale up. And where most of my customers and clients have had problems is they don't plan, they, they plan well for the initial deployment, they don't plan for the scalability over time. And as they start onboarding and spinning up and growing laterally and horizontally in terms of their usage profile, they run into roadblocks because of the resource issues. It's an interesting take on the problem, uh, Adam, because what I often hear is that, well, VDI doesn't scale. But what you're telling me is you've planned poorly, and therefore your architecture has not allowed it to, uh, to scale. You need a plan to be successful, right? I mean, that's a, a general thought process in our industry for everything we do. And the problem is, unfortunately, more often than not, people aren't really understanding what planning to be successful means or the guidance they're getting may not be as, as unfortunately as spot on as it should be. And they plan to be marginally successful, perhaps even plan to fail because they don't understand what planning to be successful really means. That, I mean, that, that's true of all, all virtual machines. I, mean, yeah. I don't care what it is or whether... I oh, mean, yeah. it's, and what it's, we're talking about here is a mainframe with, at, with well, consoles. Yeah, and it's, true, it's true of the mainframe, too. Yeah. I mean, if you sit down and you, you originally bought the mainframe with the idea and you went out and inspected and, and IBM, you said, we're going to have 50 users... And then two years later, you say we've got 500 users. It's mm -hmm. still not scalable. I mean, yeah, you can go plug more, you know, more uh, right. rack or plug more uh, CPUs into the thing, or you can plug more uh, cards into the slot. Or con consoles, right? I'm thinking even in the old days when the users yeah. accessed it via a, a console. It's really system. very similar yeah. to the way that the mainframe blew out shells, and because a shell was really just the same thing as, as these VDI type mm -hmm. uh, models, or multi-point server, or VMware has the same kind of thing. All these have this same sort of model, and it's no more scalable than the hardware you're running it on so you can always say okay throw another rack out there and, and we'll scale it on up so it is scalable but it's not scalable easily if, mm. if you didn't plan ahead because you're going we need 10 times what we thought we thought we did right and that's budget and that, that's the downside i mean that right there is the exact issue you know we we traditionally were recommending customers hey this is what you want to be doing today where do you want to be 
in mm -hmm. you know the 30, 60, 90 thought process, right? Where are you in a year? Where are you in 18 months? Beyond that, maybe 24 months. You can't really assess and plan beyond that in a reasonable way, but you can add overhead and infrastructure and say if we double every six to 12 months, what does that capacity look like? And let's leave enough overhead or let's plan on adding overhead over time to be ahead of the curve. And that's where people often make the mistake and they don't really scale. That that and the and sales the, the sale the sales people jump on that and undersell it too. At least at least that's what I've seen is they come in and when you say, well, you know, they say where do you want to be in five years? And you go, Wow, we'll have five thousand users and we got fifty now. Then the salespeople go, Well, that's what this is gonna cost and they go, But you know, you, you don't really need all that right now. You could you could back that down because we wanna get the bid. So I we've seen that a lot. Um, and, you know, there, there's a pro and a con to that. I'm sorry, Paul, I didn't mean no, to cut you okay. off. Just one point in the, from the real-world perspective, right? It's a great point you're making, but the upside is, yeah, we don't spend as much, right? So we, we defer the pain, and we get the liability as well as the benefit of buying newer technology along the way as we scale, which can be a good and a bad thing in terms of integration. The downside is if the baseline for planning is not really laid properly, you don't have enough infrastructure to not only run and ramp initially, but to scale for the first 12 months as you're growing. You run into a brick wall almost immediately. You're no longer maintaining. You're trying to play catch up while you're actually deploying, and you're never going to recover from that mistake. It's and, just it's very difficult. And I, I always tell people to take that graph and, and scale your hardware budget up right along with that because you're going to get more, for, more bang for your buck out in the future. So just make sure that the hardware you're buying is scalable. Make sure you understand that you're going to have to pay more money as that thing scales up along with your users. And that way you actually get better and more hardware out in the future. Just be sure the stuff you're buying is scalable in that way. And I, that's, I like that graph better than let's just buy a big you know, hunk of metal right now and hope it holds up over the long run. You know, what's interesting is we, if we go back to the creating a VDI for users so they have a browser to access things, uh, I've seen uh, snippets of a talk from, I believe, someone that worked for Docker or some other container company that had basically containerized their browser. Mm -hmm. The fact they had to give a whole talk on it tells you that that's not quite easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> I've also talked with vendors that can create virtual browsing uh, proxies basically do the browsing on behalf of the user inside of a container. Um, Mike and Adam, are you guys creating content around containers, and what are your thoughts on some of these newer methods that are able to provide the user with a, a, almost a sandbox environment for browsing? Um, so, I mean, both of us can answer or speak to it. I'll just speak from my own content-driven experience in terms of where I am and what I'm doing. Mike and I are both in, working in the same general areas, but we do slightly different things based on our skill sets and focus. So we actually do have content on containers that's already spun up uh, in the library. Uh, in Server 16, for instance, I just finished up a set of shows on the MCSE arc or trajectory around certification. On the security side, we did uh, stuff on Docker, containers, and Nano. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Microsoft side, so we have it specific to one vendor. Uh, we also have some stuff from Justin, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's also done yeah, containers um, and Docker more broadly and generically. Yeah, over so, on DevPro TV, we've got some container yeah. content as well. That's awesome. So we're creating content. There's definitely stuff, and there's more stuff coming on the way that we're envisioning doing and or is already a plan for launch in the next several weeks, months as we put new content and, together. And one of the things that, um, and other security professionals uh, tend to agree with me that uh, our knowledge and understanding of Docker inside the security community is extremely, I would say, going on a limb, not even going on a limb, I would say it's extremely low. And I, just, I wanted our listeners to know that you have some content on Docker and, and more to come because like we talked about with VDI, making sure you plan your architecture and there's a learning curve, as Adam said, there's a learning curve with learning Docker as well. Uh, I have to say, Ed, today was my first successful production deployment with Docker Compose. Yay! The crowd goes wild. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I'm still, <laughs> Very good. I'm still skeptical. Like, I really don't think it actually worked, although everyone's telling me that it worked, so we'll, just, we'll go with that for now. <laughs> Soon we'll know the truth. Um, but I, I just the fact that you folks are creating resources, I think, is, uh, is important, and I want to let the security community know yeah. that they can, they can go there and do that because it's important as we talk about VMware, which to me, represents some older technology, and they've had a struggle keeping up in the market because of cloud and because of containers. 
um, that you can get some of that newer technology as well. And and, and you should start uh, watching some of this content before you jump into the Docker, the dark, uh, murky Docker waters that nah. are out there waiting for It's like for I you. tell the interns, I'm like, just go try it, and when you get an error, Google search for it, and then go from there. Well, yeah, that's fine <laughs> to go try it, but it's like when you want to get serious about it, it it's, you know, it's it's kind of like it's it's now you're not just snorting a line of heroin. You're yeah. getting ready to shoot, you know, a serious. Uh, and, you, and Doug, uh, you're, you're, you couldn't be more uh, right, and I'm, I'm sure virtualization and a lot of other technology are the same way. When a technology is new, what I've realized is that a lot of people are like, hey, here's how you spin up some new Docker containers. Right. And you're like, that's great. And then you're like, well, how do I do this in production? And it's like, oh, yeah. wow. that those Like all those posts from all those thousands, maybe hundreds of people in Docker's case are completely useless and, to and me. Dev is fun. I mean, Dev's <laughs> a blast, and you're going to love it. And that's where you do. Just go dive right in and hope the water's deep enough that mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't get killed. But when you do go to prod... That when you get into production, hey, when I do it, I do it in production. Well, Paul's That's the prod <laughs> man. Paul, Paul's ready to prod anything at a moment's notice. But I mean, when when you go into production, that's when life is going to change, and you're going to bring your enterprise crashing down, or you're going to run into these long-term scalability issues, long-term viability issues because you didn't think it through, and you said, "Oh yeah, this was fun, and it worked when we were playing around in the lab." But now I've got a hundred thousand customers on this or, thing, or or you're going to have your first successful deployment using Docker and Docker <laughs> Compose, and you're going to say, well, I, I made there's a, a, a mistake. I need to push a new one out, and then three, <laughs> less than three minutes later, there's another new release out. Exactly. So, so that's, you get to that's the, that's the, the you know, culmination finding. of eight months of work that I've realized with Docker is that once you go through that learning curve, and, and Adam was talking about it before with, with VDI, uh, to bring it back to virtualization, like once you experience that learning curve, now you're on the other side of it, right? right? Like there's there's a definitely like a yeah. not a bell curve, but there's a ramp up to it. Mm, it's yeah. Sorry, it's Adam. One of the things, my... just to throw in a quick yeah, just throw in a quick thought on that. So you around Docker with great technology, can't say enough good things about the concept and the ability to go into the future with new technology. It's always exciting, and there's ups and downs for everything, right? But we do have content, which is great. But the other thing we're doing around the content is not just spending time on Docker, but we're building content out around additional supporting technologies like Ansible mm-hmm. uh, and other automation and DevOps generically as a kind of catch-all category, right? All the automation and support technologies that you really need to make sense of Docker, whether it's Compose or, or one of the other platforms that will let you do those things. So we're, we're really starting to build that base and give you not just the ability to understand, as you said, the core, but let's talk about how you really operationalize that technology yep. so you can make it work as opposed to just simply saying, hey, look, I was successful, mm-hmm. but I can't really use those skills in production. I could just say that I'm able to do this, but it doesn't really mean much. Yeah, it's like, We're trying hey, to take that approach and really make it scalable. Hey, here's my, my Docker file, and you can run, you know, Nginx and uh, UWSGI and MySQL <laughs> all in the same container. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that, that's great. That works great as a test. But in production, as Adam is saying, to build on what Adam is saying. Totally impractical. Right, yeah. You've got Kubernetes, and you're deploying hundreds, if not thousands, of containers, and you're orchestrating them all together between potentially three or four different uh, staging areas, development, production, and QA. Uh, and it's, and, and it's just, I, I always used to talk so about different. the great database flaw, uh, fallacy was that I got my database working, and you're so happy but then when database is one of the most instantly scalable things on earth because when you're fooling with it, it's really small. And the mm-hmm. minute you turn it loose and 200,000 people log <laughs> in, the database goes from like zero to mm-hmm. infinity in about two yeah. seconds. And, and you never thought about that because when you were playing with it, even when you got six people of interns to sit right. down and enter records, it seemed pretty good. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. that not only blows up inside your Docker, but your, blo- your Docker blows up and all your instances blow up. And all of a sudden, you have a real problem that you never really thought about. Uh, and, it, and that's a real quick one that happens early in, in prod. Yeah. Uh, so, Adam and Mike, you wanted to uh, talk about TPM. So, d- describe the, the TPM model and how it applies to uh, virtualization. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the things that, that I've been playing around with is the fact that they're now, we're now able to virtualize our TPM inside like VM Workstation, which is something that I've been waiting for. It's available in other virtualization technologies, uh, but gives me the ability to kind of play around with it, test it, do demos with it, show it on some of our episodes, things like that. So, Mike, I'm sorry, um, just back so up for our listeners, uh, what yeah. is TPM and why, why would I want to implement the model? 
Uh, TPM, Trusted Platform Module, it's, it can be implemented in several different ways. Typically, we see it in, you know, in a physical machine. We're talking about a separate semiconductor or separate chip on the motherboard uh, where that's implemented. And, and the reason we like these is the, um, the segregation that we get, right? The, the TPM is where we're going to store some cryptographic keys for like BitLocker. Um, it can store many things in there, but it's isolated certificates. We're going to take a look at, uh, we'll even show you how we can do virtual certificates or virtual smart cards inside a TPM, uh, but it's isolated. It's a trusted base, right, that's isolated from the operating system. So the mm -hmm. keys, the cryptographic keys and things like that stored outside the operating system where, you know, hopefully the idea is um, inaccessible to somebody that's hacking into your OS. So do you use Think TPM? essentially a... Oh, sorry, my question, ahead, I'm sorry. sorry, my question was, do you use TPM mm -hmm. to authenticate or validate the user the, or the applications or both? Um, well, it's really storing the authentication information, mm -hmm. right? The, the keys or the certificates are going to be loaded in there. And basically with a TPM and a virtual smart card, the way Windows sees it, for example, is that you've always got a smart card reader plugged in and you've always got your smart card loaded up. Oh, I see. Um, so it's so kind it, of like a, a hardware vault built into your computer. Yes, or, exactly. Or a, crypto, yeah. a hardware-based crypto vault. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So you're storing mm -hmm. your cryptographic that, can, I want, I've always wanted to ask this question uh, if it's to somebody who knew. Is there a gap between that hardware vault and then the VM? Because I always was thinking about that was maybe there's a gap between that plugged-in module and the actual VM that's like on the bus or somewhere that you could get to. Or is all that stuff sent in, in some kind of really nice encrypted format? That's a good question. So it's a great question. So there, there's two um, answers to that. Both, I guess, would be yes, right? So um, interestingly, in the demo we're going to do, the mic's going to drive for us here in a minute, uh, we're going to see that we're implementing, or Mike will implement, a virtual TPM. So not a hardware-based one, but essentially a virtual instance. It can actually be done independent of the TPM being installed and configured in the operating system on the physical host. So in Hyper-V in Microsoft, in VMware, uh, and in, yeah, well, actually in both, in ESXi mm -hmm. and or, right, in the workstation, we actually can implement the virtual TPM, attach it to quote-unquote, the virtual machine instance, the guest OS, as a piece of hardware we add in, and we initialize it and use it, whether there's a physical TPM in the machine that's hosting. Hmm. And as a result, essentially, we run independent of the TPM on the host because the virtual TPM becomes a self-contained virtual hardware instance as part of the VM. So there is a, um, a gap, if you will, right, because we're not relying on the physical TPM in order to use the virtual TPM instance. And it is all encrypted as part of storage. Uh, and as a result of that, it's not accessible. So there's no way to get into it unless you essentially crack the virtual machine itself, which as far as anybody's been able to prove up until now, everything being relative, right, always a disclaimer, current <laughs> encryption standards being used, current computing power being thrown at it has proven to be uh, an, un an unrealistic, unfeasible attempt. We're currently actually using, uh, what is it, AESNI, on the encryption side for ESXi, for vSphere 6.5. Uh, so a high-level version of AES with 256-bit uh, encryption, you're actually getting 2,040-bit keys, which are, are seen as being strong enough to withstand anything we currently throw at them. Quantum computing aside, obviously. Yeah. Quantum computing aside, right? <laughs> of course. I'll get into that. No, we, won't go to, we won't go there. Um, so... Uh, is the the TPM is a uh, I understand it's almost like a key store. Um, it, mm -hmm. Is there a like how do you load the initial keys onto it? Like I'm thinking of uh, there are like SCADA firewall providers that have like a hardware thing where basically you know data can go in but it can't leave and there's like a physical hardware barrier mm -hmm. where things can come in and out. Is the TPM kind of similar when it's actually physical hardware hardware not virtual? <laughs> So when, it, when it's physical on the host, let's say we're actually dealing with this uh, cryptographic silicone mm -hmm. chip that Mike was talking about, the module. Um, and you may have seen um, HSMs, hardware security models, that are yeah. essentially external versions of TPMs, right? That's more or less what you're describing. So they work in a similar fashion. You're putting stuff into the system through an interface in the motherboard. It's essentially, although you do have limited capabilities, depending on the vendor and how they're implemented in the OS, uh, in, for instance, in uh, Microsoft in version TPM 1.2 and Windows 10 or these other OSs, we can go in and have some basic management GUI interface 
capabilities to reset the keys and essentially reset okay. the TPM. But with version 2.0, the newer standard, we don't have any capability to essentially get in and see it and interact with it uh, because it's totally isolated. So it really depends on the hardware vendor's implementation on the OS binding to it. But it is seen as essentially a solution that we can put stuff in, but you really can't go in and remove stuff unless you're using an approved interface and a channel. And that's only through the OS and it's protected by the kernel. So there's really no way for us to get to it. Can, can, I, can I ask one more question then? So yeah. one thing that always worries me about anything is virtualized is, is that when you have a piece of hardware, it's a piece of hardware. I mean, it's a thing. And when you have something that's virtualized, even if it's virtualized hardware, it essentially is in memory. It's in software. It's, it's software. It's in software. So, yeah, to slowly work my way around to the proper terminology. It's in software. <laughs> but I guess my point is, Anything in software can effectively be corrupted by, you know, whether it's a memory leak, it's a, a stack overflow, it's any kind of a problem like that. I'm not even talking about like an attack. I'm just talking about like a, a bad piece of software that corrupts the memory of the virtual machine. Is it possible that that corrupts the TPM that's virtualized and then you're just basically locked out of your, your, uh, your VM forever and you can never get back into it because this virtual piece of stuff got corrupted? Sure, sure. So I, I don't want to monopolize the answer, oh, no. yeah. but let me just quickly speak to that. And Michael, obviously, jump in, throw in anything else he wants to add. So the short answer is: Look, you, we all know, right? There's there's all this unknown uh, things that are just constantly popping up and occurring elsewhere in a system that can always impact us, right? So when we say definitively it'll never happen, we're proven wrong the next day. So I'm not going to say it's it's not possible, but given what we know about the nature of the technology, how it implements today, uh, I would say it's, it's not only highly unlikely, but it's considered to be improbable. The reason for it, and let's use VMware as a test case, because VMware implements specifically in a slightly different way. Every vendor has slightly different ways in which they implement the thought process. But VMware, we, we call the idea of encryption taking place within the VM stored in memory as essentially resident snowflakes. That's what they're referred to. You have these encryption bits that are floating around that potentially are liable to become compromised, right, as you were describing. Hey, we have a stack overflow over here. Adobe goes nuts or something crazy like that, right. totally unrelated. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything blows up, and now everything is purple screened or blue screened, and we can't get in. Um, VMware manages this differently. The VM encryption itself, what's going on, uh, is taking place uh, outside. It's running in such a way that the keys and the virtual information that's being encrypted are not contained right directly in the VM memory. And as a result, we don't worry about that corruption because they are sandboxed off, isolated, and they're not okay. going to be susceptible to that as a result. So that's usually the model. And as a result, we're not seeing that as being a, a major risk. Okay. Mm -hmm. At least not right now. I mean, who knows what malware may pop up at well, some point. Well, yeah, I wasn't even really but, getting at malware. Yeah. I think I was getting at more what you're yeah. addressing, which which but, was the idea yeah. that, that something just corrupts it rather than it's an, a you know a, a targeted attack because it's very you know, like you say you're never going to prevent every possible outcome. But I'm more worried about Adobe you know blowing a gasket than I am about targeted malware because you know I'll I'll deal with that when it happens. Yeah, considered to be highly improbable. Let's put it that way. Given okay, I'll, I'll take that. It's kind of like yeah. catching Ebola. It's probably not that likely, but, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's exactly. going to suck if you do. <laughs> so you guys yeah. want to see a little bit of how this works? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. And, so and Mike's going to jump well, in. We're going to share his machine. And yeah, he's going to drive for a couple minutes. I, I think what Adam and Mike are saying is it's um, there's no known attacks against right. this this infrastructure, yeah. this, this particular technology yet, right? I, we just had a, a great conversation with... Um, a researcher from uh, the head of research at Onapsis, and you know people are asking questions about, hey, like is this table inside of SAP that stores all the user thing? Like, what do you do to lock that down? And it does SAP do a good job of securing it? He's like, well, you know, before July of this year, I would have told you, as far as I know, yeah. He's like, but in July, we've got like this heinous, unauthenticated, critical vulnerability that we found that basically lets you get access to that table and crack it wide open without prior knowledge and any credentials. Those, are, those yeah. are coding flaws rather than, than theoretical flaws which, which exist in the system. And coding flaws you're just going to have to live with. I mean, are, are fixed because when mm -hmm. coders do bad things, then we all pay. But uh, and, and hey, look, there's been a ton of, not a ton, but a good number of vulnerabilities against virtual infrastructure, against virtual machines yeah. and escapes of that nature. And I, I don't, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, any of our listeners out there or anyone on the panel today, like, I don't think they've posed a significant problem for organizations because they get fixed, people implement the yeah. fixes, uh, and we go on with life. In the cloud, 
got some of the best virtualization and cloud security experts that work for places like Amazon and Google and Microsoft. Then I'm not saying it doesn't happen. When it does, they they remediate the issues. And so. the level of fiduciary harm yeah. that results from a VMware exploit is going to be so severe that yeah, they're VMware, fix it. yeah, VMware has right. a vested interest in pursuing those things very quickly and or upfront mm-hmm. because of the level of fiduciary harm that results from it, some kind Doug of exploit. Doug loves like that. that term fiduciary. Well, they all he tries to, to he works at it every time, <laughs> at least a couple of times. They have to drink half a bottle of vodka every time I say it. So <laughs> like, the, the crew next door is deceased at this point. All right. So Mike's going to show us how this how this works. All right, so I got uh, Workstation 14 fired up here, uh, and the first thing you're going to do if you want to implement uh, virtual smart cards is you've got to add a virtual TPM uh, to your machine. So that is done through the settings, and if I go to let's see here, we'll pull up settings, uh, and you can see I've already added one. Had this done before the show, but to show you how I did it, you just go into Add. And you'll see it's a piece of hardware. Now, in this case, you know, I've already added one. tells me I can't add one more. The, the key here is that the virtual machine has to be encrypted prior to this. Uh, if I go to another machine real quick and we take a look at the settings. You know, I can go down to my Add Hardware Wizard, and I can see the Trusted Platform module as an option here, uh, but it tells me that I cannot add this until it's encrypted, as well as being you know, set to use the UEFI as its firmware. So that's step number one, is make sure you encrypt the machine. Um, and that's something we're going to talk about in a little bit, because we're when you go to encrypt that machine, that's when you're going to assign the password that is going to control access to that machine. Uh, and once you get the virtual machine encrypted, then you're able to go back into the settings and add the virtual TPM. Um, doesn't change much on the machine. Once you get that TPM added, you can launch uh, like TPM.msc. Um, if it's going to let me, of course, my you know, good old Windows 10 just went through some updates, and now my, uh, my search <laughs> isn't actually uh, launching there. Let's see if I can get it from here. Uh, TPM. Uh, MSC. Let's see if we can launch that up this way. <clears throat> and what you'll see is what Adam was referring to earlier. Uh, this is TPM 2.0, and you used to be able to come in with TPM 1.2. You had all the commands that your particular vendor uh, and implementation of that TPM chip had made available to you. Uh, you could see those here. You don't see any of that anymore. Uh, once you go to 2.0, it's all managed. Windows manages it uh, automatically, um, takes ownership. Uh, you still have a couple commands here, change owner, uh, clear TPM. Uh, I'll show you this more than anything just to show that, you know, this is a VM running Windows 10 uh, in VMware Workstation uh, 14, uh, and it has a, GP, it has a TPM, so, uh, which then opens up the door for doing things like virtual smart cards or BitLocker, right? You know, when we think about virtual machines, one of the best things we can do to protect them is whole drive encryption. You know, I don't want somebody to be able to walk off with my virtual machine and fire it up somewhere else. Um, BitLocker, to get the full um, protection from BitLocker, we want that TPM so we can store the keys there. Uh, and so now we were able to do things like that. So with this guy, uh, I didn't think you wanted to sit around and watch it encrypt the drive. But in my <laughs> virtual so machine, you can see that. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and let me blow this guy back up for us so we can see that a little better. Uh, but you can see my icon there. I've got BitLocker enabled on my, in this case, on my operating system drive, um, taking advantage of that TPM or that virtual TPM uh, and able to store the BitLocker keys in there. So we're able to... Uh, um uh, enable BitLocker. That's a good thing. Uh, and again, we can start doing the virtual smart cards, which is... Um, something I'm seeing more inter- enterprises starting to get interested in. They want to enable smart cards. They want to take advantage of that capability uh, and the security associated with it. But it does require some infrastructure. You know, you've got to have your smart card readers that your users have access to. Uh, you've got to have the the smart cards themselves. Um, smart cards being Mike, that I physical d- device. Or yeah, I uh-huh. just want to back up. So in a, a non-virtual world, right? I would have a mm-hmm. smart card. I would get into work in the morning. I'd have to put that in my system, boot it up, and it would have to read my smart card in order to decrypt my hard drive. Is that is it essentially exactly. the way it yep. works? Okay. Yep. Uh, and you might have a certificate on there that was issued to you by your PKI that allows you to log into your system, or it could be I a gotcha. certificate for 
remote access or what have you. You know, and and then one of the big downsides of, of smart cards like that, and the, what you were just talking about, is the card itself, right? We get the multi-factor authentication or multi-factor dealing with now it's something I know, the pin that goes with the card mm -hmm. uh, and the card itself. But those cards are easy to lose, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, they're they're very easy to misplace, leave at home. So now we've got to have provisions for that. What uh, do I do if a, a user comes quick, in? Quick story on that. Uh -huh. We just traveled to, to Sands yep. Hackfest. And at uh -huh. least three times, both during and after the trip, I had a moment of panic because I couldn't find my YubiKey. Ooh. Just saying. Because, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. when you're in the it's, office, you kind of have your routine. Like, I always keep it clipped to my belt. Blah, blah, blah. And then when you go on travel, for example, is when Mike's talking about people losing stuff, like, well, I got to go through TSA. So now I got to put yeah. that smart card or whatever somewhere else because I can't have anything in my pockets. If I want to, maybe I want a freedom funnel, but I still don't want anything in my, in my pockets. So I got to put that in my bag. Now there's just a whole opportunity mm -hmm. for losing it. It's almost like the sign they used to have on the, the tube in London that said, beware of pickpockets. If the pickpockets put up, now you put up a sign that says, where's your Yubi key? Yeah. And watch everybody touch themselves. <laughs> and so uh, I was worried that I was going to have to make a tweet. Yeah, I'm a security professional, and I, I lost my two-factor auth token at a pen testing conference. That, that, would, that would be bad. On the scale of things, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> I think you should just put up, I lost my security token during a Freedom Fondle. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to license that domain yeah. later. Yeah. Freedomfondle.org. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, continue. You know, it, <laughs> you know, it brings up another point, too. Um, how long before you thought you might have misplaced your right. uh, YubiKey? Yeah. Right? You, we're talking about users, and they might, when they go to use their card and realize they don't have it, when did they misplace it? How long ago was it? How long has that been out there somewhere with somebody potentially um, having access to it, trying to use it? Where with a, a virtual TPM or a virtual smart card, I should say, you know, if I'm loading that up on their personal computer, they've got a personal investment. That's their device. They use it for other things. They're going to know if, if somebody has stole their laptop mm. or if somebody has stole their, their phone uh, quicker and they can notify administration say hey look my laptop got stolen we can now immediately um uh, revoke that certificate make sure that nobody's attempting to use it you know things like that so there's there's a lot of pluses to going with with virtual smart cards um there's a little bit of a downside you know it's not portable right it is stored in the tpm or the virtual tpm in the hardware so if i go to another machine i i can't export that um virtual smart card and I can't get it out of there. So I'm going to have another virtual spark card on another laptop. So there's, does, there's does a, a little bit of a downside there. If you're blowing out, like, live desktops, can you do that? I mean, would it would the key be blown out with it? Or, or if you were doing um, you know, on the on, just, uh, like, rolling them on the fly kind of things? You know, I, I haven't tried that. So I don't, I don't want to say that you can. Hmm. Um, the provisioning that I've done with the virtual smart cards is all done on the image after the okay. um yeah, so, so it's just like installing uh, virtual hardware, yeah. It, it would yep. be an overlay on top, right? It's not part of the base image. You wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. Yep. Traditionally, you wouldn't. You know, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not what you do. Yep. Um, but now, the other, you know, probably the other, the other, go ahead. I'm sorry, if I'm an attacker, can I steal the virtual smart card? Like if I break into the system, can I take that virtual smart card mm -hmm. and then go to another system and use that to log in? Or is there, there's assumingly no. some kind of technology that prevents me from... From doing that yeah exactly the, the tpm is protected and you're not going to get access to it uh the virtual smart card it has this a lot of or it has almost all of the same protection that you're going to get from a physical card once that certificate gets on that smart card you can't offload it right you, it's non-exportability um so you can't get the certificate out of the smart card uh same thing with the virtual smart cards uh the virtual smart cards support anti-hammering um, so you, you can't sit there and pound away on the pin. Uh, Microsoft, or I don't know, with Microsoft's implementation, it can be done a little differently depending on the vendor. Mm -hmm. uh, but they have, um, as I drop my earpiece here, um, uh, their anti-hammering techniques, you start getting a delay, much like I see on the, uh, the uh, iPhone uh, mm -hmm. and things, devices like that, where if you put the wrong pin in too many times, it says, hey, try back in two minutes. Again, all right, try back in 10 minutes. Pretty soon you're going to have to wait two hours before you try again. Uh, yeah, so, so they not, have the entering. It's not like a piece of software that I can, like, take mm -hmm. from a system and put somewhere else. No. It's somehow tied, well, tied virtually right. to that I system. I mean, the so thing you worry works. about is, is 
Go ahead, you'd Adam. worry about physical proximity access to the box and, and somebody co-opting the box mm -hmm. as opposed to the, I got the certificate, okay. right? We want, you want to be one level up above because we're, we're still worried ultimately about somebody being able to get in front of it and use it incorrectly, but they have to take over the box as opposed mm -hmm. to co-opting only mean, the software aspect. If someone's going to steal the machine, they're going to steal the machine. If someone's going to steal my hardware yeah. token, they're going to steal my hardware token. Right, right. right. Someone's right. able to do yeah. that. You got bigger problems. Yeah. In other words, and once, once yeah. you get exactly. back to that physical layer, yeah. all bets are off because I mean now you can you can circumvent all kinds of things if you can get into the physical. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think Very physical true. access trumps almost all security, right? At least every it's time I've ever be the seen bane it, of our yeah. existence. Yeah, yep. pretty much. Yep. But the other thing, the other point I just wanted to raise about going to a virtual infrastructure on the smart card side, we were talking about this earlier. You know, it's not a primary security point, but indirectly, I think it is. And, and people don't often make this connection. I talk about this with my customers and my students a lot. You know, there is the cost factor, right, which Mike brought up, we both talked about, which is you're decreasing the physical capital outlay, right? So a capital or operational expenditure around the line items for smart card initially acquisition, but ultimately maintenance and um, replacement over time. You know, I deal with military and government uh, clients quite a bit, CAC cards, which I'm sure we're all familiar with yep. generically, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the cost associated with those things is not inconsequential mm -hmm. just from the acquisition standpoint, let alone the maintenance mm -hmm. around the infrastructure. But I think the, the, the thing that impacts security, aside from the obvious, and Mike raised a great point about this, which is potentially the speed at which we could turn around that recognition of loss and reporting, government and military in particular, mm -hmm. you know, that's an offense that potentially, you know, in, especially in these days and times, unfortunately, if that cat car goes missing, you don't report it within what is considered an operationally reasonable amount of time, you, you have a lot of explaining to do and may wind up in a, in a very difficult position. <laughs> right. But more importantly, um, I think the, the, the savings we recoup potentially from that investment and not having to maintain it the same way, my, my pitch to customers and my thought process with students is how you impact security is by redirecting that investment the company would have made into better awareness, better capabilities, and ultimately benefit the system by broadening and strengthening our defensive perimeters mm. and all the things associated with shoring that up. Then I think you really see an economic benefit being turned into a security benefit that's measurable, right? We get something valuable out of that. And I think that's what businesses often miss hey, we're saving all that money, let's zero that line item out and let's put it somewhere else. No, let's reinvest it and make sure we spend it to achieve this even better levels of security, but from a different technology perspective. Mm -hmm. I think that's really where the savings and ultimately the benefit comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Sorry, I, Jeff, are you, you're still there with us. <laughs> Yeah, we I had know. this, you know, we had this conversation when we were at HackFest. Uh, the current technology in the studio is always evolving, and it evolved to the point where we led to this uh, area where I can't see all the Skype guests. Yeah. Uh, and did you notice that just now? I did, yeah. And so Jeff's not up on the screen. We're not able to look at Jeff's reactions and, like, caught to him for a question. And I've apologized to Jeff for that, and we're going to fix that in the coming weeks so that we are able to see you. But, Jeff, I want to go to you and see if you have questions uh, at this point for uh, Mike and Adam. Uh, yeah, I've had like a dozen of them. Sorry. It's hard to break in. Sorry. And you're probably <laughs> waving your hands, and I couldn't see. That's Jeff's signal to me. When Jeff waves his hands, I know to go to him for a question, but I can't see Jeff. Sorry, Yeah, Jeff. now he's waving. Yeah. yeah. Well, I stopped waving when he said he couldn't see me. Yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> Well, I was going to go all – well, my first question was what does this thing look like? But then we did a demo, uh, so we kind of have a, a vision of it. Um, you've already talked about how things ultimately fall or fail. I wanted to highlight some of the things you said, like uh, at some point you talked about uh, it's all – it all depends on the implementation. Um, so mm -hmm. you, you've you've caught most of the comments that are in the side sidebar comments I wanted to make throughout the whole thing. Um, I, I guess my most ba basic stupid question is because we were talking about uh, the virtual desktop um, at the very beginning. VDI is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. um, what what does somebody run a VDI on? Like the, um, the sure. user. Oh, actually, it's great. 
Great question, and and we often overlook the obvious, right? In the rush to answer the the uh, you know enormous bigger bigger ticket items. So VDI really the way the technology was positioned and kind of came about would be an extension of. Um, you know, minimal terminals like the Wise terminals, right? Or Things BYOD. Like yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or BYOD. Yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. so VDI can run, you know, depending on the, the what the customer is doing, what they have laying around, what their end game is. Is it a hotel with VDI instances up at the desk for check-in? Is it a remote, uh, you know, computer or a group of computers that are in the field, right, that may be used in a remote area where we have to do certain things. Um, you know, probably minimal hardware. We're not talking about very expensive, very high-end systems. We just need something that has enough resources to essentially connect to a network, have storage locally, minimal memory, minimal CPU to be able to run. Uh, but it can be a very low-end system. It doesn't need to be anything very complex and high-end. No, and absolutely. Is, an organization is it, is, it can... is it in a browser? Like, there's, I need a, a, in certain circumstances, do I need a a web browser that goes to the what VDI server and then it loads my What you're thinking about is, um, so Citrix kind of pioneered this thought yeah. process. Okay. What you're describing is what well, we call Zen I, Desktop I now ask, and Zen App, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's the, the, well, the, the idea behind application provision. And so in the, VDI sorry, instance, in the VDI instance, it's not a web browser per se. Um, no. It's not activated through the web browser in the sense you need the web browser to activate the instance. You're throwing essentially uh, an operating system instance, a desktop into a piece of hardware, spinning that up and running it. There are web browsers certainly associated with that. But what you're describing more aptly, Paul, is, is the idea of application provisioning through some sort of web API or gateway mm -hmm. that lets you pull down an app and spin that up, uh, you know, through a farm or something like I gotcha. that, right? That, that kind that of That was model. a Citrix right. thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, right, uh, yeah, what Jeff, they call Jeff's Zen app or Zen desktop. Jeff's raising his hand again. Well, I was <laughs> gonna, you, you brought up Citrix because when you were first describing it, I was wondering what's the difference, you know, isn't this what Citrix essentially is? You, you know, you're looking to save money by not supplying everybody with a, a full-blown desktop. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and then Doug brought up the old, whole idea of the clients uh, or, or the, the, the monitors uh, for a mainframe, which is, is even more terminal. basic, I guess, going back. Right. Like an X-Terminal. Bring, bring your X own terminal. dumb terminal. Yeah. Like where X-Terminal came yeah. from. I was That's trying exactly to describe right. that to yeah. the interns. Like they're like, yeah, <laughs> we know we run X, but we don't understand. I'm like, yeah, because like back in the day, you had an X terminal, and, and the, that's the why you had terminal, an X term. Like the X old terminal just like, had enough memory and yeah, enough processing yeah. power to display the image and manage the keyboard, and that was it. Um, God, we're old. I know it's bad. <laughs> back in my day, but but exactly what what you're describing, you know, in the sense that yes, yeah, Citrix is kind of you know that they they were much like whether you believe and rightly feel today perhaps that the moniker is earned and deserved, you know, VMware is seen as that pioneer in the virtualization space, right, if you go back. Right. And Citrix right. is really that pioneer in that space, but from the desktop mm. virtual environment, application servicing um, perspective, a WinFrame, MetaFrame, you know, you go back in time, all these names for that solution. Uh, and, and that's really what they are famous for, what they have done. They went open source, went into the Zen platform and kind of, you know, threw their arms up and said, hey, not so much server side. We're going to focus more on the app and the desktop side. And VMware and Microsoft are kind of battling it out there uh, on the server side, although Oracle does have an enterprise-grade virtualization solution as well. But it's mainly, the, it's mainly that. Jeff, final questions so, before we get to five questions. Final question. <laughs> Hopefully it's a thought-provoking question. So uh, in the history of the Internet and technology and networking and all this stuff that we've been doing, some of us for many years, very often technology comes along that, uh, you know, sometimes it's very pioneering and sometimes it's great. Uh, and it's often uh, becomes popular because of the uh, perceived potential cost savings. So, you know, in the early days of VM and the early days of Citrix, you know, all these things were sold because they would save the customers so much money. Because desktops and were expensive, Jeff, right? They were. I mean, my, were. my first mm -hmm. desktop that I purchased, uh, gosh, in the early 90s was like $4,000. I was in junior it, high school. It, just it, it was a penny of ninety, which was <laughs> I don't want to hear about. Which was screaming. You know, it was it was top of the line. You have, you had like Pentium in early nineties. You were you were richer than yeah. I was. Yeah, big shot. <laughs> it cost four thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, 
So, but mm-hmm. but oftentimes then, as as time progresses, we discover the hidden costs, and and things aren't as always attractive as they first seem. So, my question is, you know, do you see any potential pitfalls or uh, things? You know, as as this technology becomes more pervasive, what are the potential Pitfalls. You, you touched on some perhaps early on, just not planning ahead. But beyond not planning ahead, do you see any kind of pitfalls or, or problems with the perceived cost savings? Sure, sure. So gr- great question uh, because it forces us to step back and really think, which sometimes, as we indicate, right, is, is the bane of anybody's existence <laughs> as you're planning. So I, I think there's probably three that, that we often talk about or I focus on with customers. One we mentioned already, and you called that, which is lack of foresight to plan to be able to scale right over time and to be effective at your investments, as we said, so you don't make them up front and then not realize the benefit of the technology, but rather you spread them out and really get the maximum benefit of that spend as you go over time. So I think that whole area is one. I think number two is the concern that we come to rely on the technology because we think it's a panacea, right? It fixes our problems. And we don't, as a result, work as hard to figure out how to stay ahead of the curve when we become essentially complacent. You know, what I see in cloud infrastructure, in data center infrastructure, in those environments that I spend a lot of time with with customers is, oh, we virtualized so much that essentially, as a result of doing that, we don't need as much infrastructure knowledge to manage. We need different skills, don't get me wrong, but we don't need those hardware guys. We don't need those hardcore infrastructure guys that we used to keep on staff, we used to maintain, made up the core of our IT, quote unquote, environment and departments. Um, Either we converted them, flipped them into virtualization slash cloud people, whatever that may or may not mean, or they've gone the way of the dinosaur and they're gone. And then when something breaks, and our BCDR environment requires us to fail back into environments that are perhaps having to be maintained by people that don't understand them. I think we have a, a very significant risk that goes undersold in the organization and under-recommended or under-reported and under-identified. So and the atrophy of skills as a result of shift in technology, because we lose sight of those older skills that may still be very valuable, and remapping them in the appropriate way to really scale, I think is, is number two. And I think number three is this move, which we've seen dramatically with virtualization uh, with regards to enablement of cloud. You know, you can do cloud um, at, at a basic level very, very minimally without necessarily having to scale massively. But you really can't do cloud the way we think of it today without virtualization. It's the key enablement technology. And if you don't have it, you can't really be in the cloud and do anything as a service, which is you know, where everything is heading, more or less, right or wrong. And so I think the third area that's of concern as I look out around the landscape from a threat perspective and kind of just you know, long-term how do we deal with this is that this headlong rush into the cloud as people are outsourcing risk. And what does that mean for us? Not so much from a technology perspective, because the vendors are, are dealing with that, right? They're, they're doing the containerization, they're doing all those things, and we're paying them essentially to manage that risk, which is awesome. I think the problem is we're not necessarily fully um, envisioning and understanding what the enablement of that risk is as it, as it cycles back to us. Again, I'll, I'll refer back to one instance with BCDR. If our BCDR, Business Continuity Disaster Recovery Plan, is we're going to fail into the cloud from on-prem versus fail through the cloud, vendor platform across geography versus fail out of the cloud back into our on-prem, and we have three distinct ways to do that, I think we run the risk of, of misunderstanding and not necessarily fully testing and appreciating what those concerns are as we virtualize. We just don't really get it in some respects, unfortunately. And I think those are are critical areas for me in terms of customer engagement, dealing with customers, and and dealing with the training aspects of security awareness around them. Now, Mike and Adam, and and Mike, you've been here. We've we've had cigars together. I can totally (laughs) envision a time where you both come here in studio likely with Doug, probably with Jeff, if he's able to make every, where we're all sitting in the studio together sharing drinks and cigars. That's a reality, right? 
Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You can't say no to a good scotch and a good cigar. <laughs> there you go. I, I totally got that, that vibe uh, from you both. So we, we have to make that happen. I'd love to have you both uh, here in studio. We even had guitars yesterday on, on Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. We had guitars yeah. in the studio. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, cool. I had, nice. like, the entire, so speaking Daniel of, was... like, music and stuff, the entire production staff was in my office, and we're all taking turns with my various headphones and mm-hmm. headphone amps, and it was like a like a dance party. But we could only do, like, two headphones at a time. So it, it was just, it was, it was a great. When, time. when that there conversation were, started and you said we were all in my office taking turns, my mind went was, a whole different was, direction was, before you got the headphones. <laughs> we, you know, we took our shirts off because that's just part of it. We had, all had headphones on. It was, it was a great experience. Paul's office mosh pit. That's right. It was, it was, it was a lot of awesome. fun. So um, I want to ask you both. Now, you got to play five questions with Security Weekly. And when there's uh, two guests on, it's a lot of fun because we do like an alternating version of mm-hmm. the five questions with security weekly so i start with one person i ask them a question i go to the next person i ask them the same question then i ask that person a different question i switch to the other person you guys got it you ready yep, yep. it'll wait, make way more sense once we start so i will okay. start with <laughs> mike and i will ask All you right. the first question three words to describe yourself three words to describe myself that is correct oh gosh uh let's see oh gosh is only uh, two you need three yeah. one three, more yeah. three words um <laughs> i don't know that is three uh, i can't I describe I know myself yeah jeez I, I don't know how to describe myself uh laid back casual relaxed excellent we'll hyphenate those first two for you adam three words to describe yourself <laughs> Well, just take one look at me, right? Uh, I'm thinking um, awesomely energetic hippie. There you go. Yeah, you <laughs> haven't seen the back with the hair. It's all bundled up right now. I've got hair down the bottom of my back. So. Now, Adam, if you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? If I was. You're, you're assuming I'm not. If, but If you uh, were, or maybe you are. Weapon of choice, a virtual TPM. I thought he was going to say his hair. Yeah. <laughs> Mike. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Oh, I think a machete would be nice. Mike, if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Uh, um, you know, I've actually had this conversation before, and I am 49, and I would have to have a book that said Mike's Guide to Healthy Living. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for our listeners <laughs> holding up I uh, have a, <laughs> Mountain Dew, not Code Red Mountain Dew, which we talked about earlier this week, but Mountain Dew that's and cigarettes. That's, that's, yeah. Yes. Classic. classic. Haven't been, knock on wood, haven't been to the doctor in, I don't know, 30 years. So, yeah, and I'm no, something to be to said for the medicinal uh, yeah, value of Mountain Dew and cigarettes. Adam, I am I'm completely embalmed at this point, so go. I'm good to go. Adam, if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Uh, for me, uh, probably how to drink espresso in every country in the world, because I'm, I'm a big espresso head. That's my thing. Yeah. Adam. Big time. That's the only reason I keep going. Adam, in the, in the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? I always prefer to go second. Mike, do you prefer to go first or second in the popular game? You know, I don't even, I'm not even sure I understand that question. It's, it's popular <laughs> in Europe. We'll you go need, first. You need more Mountain Dew. Mike's answer is first. Yeah, Mike, I'm going first. Mike, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Two celebrities to be my parent? Let's go with, uh, oh, let's see. Who would be my father? I'll take Clooney as my dad. Um, and I'll take... Um, Lucy Liu is my mom. There you go. Ooh, nice, nice combination. <laughs> Adam, two celebrities to be your. Parents. I would go with. Uh, I would go with Sean Connery as my uh, father. Good uh, and I would go with Sophia Loren. <laughs> Sophia Loren is my mother. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> well, Mike and Adam, thank you so much for appearing on Security Weekly. You can find uh, Mike and Adam's content on the IT Pro TV network. I don't know about you, but, like, my first task for tomorrow is to go check out their content on, oh, the, yeah. on the network now after yeah, sitting yeah, with yeah. them for an hour <laughs> and chatting. Yeah. Uh, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having us, Paul. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. <clears throat> with that, we're going to take a short break. Come back. Talk about security news. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere.